So we are in week four of this look at the question, who am I? The question of biblical human identity. <clears throat> in the beginning of this series, I said that we have three main goals, and that is to understand God's purpose in creating us and that we would become more settled and joyful in life and less anxious and distracted because we know who has created us and why. And, and in this, we would be drawn into deeper worship and wonder of who God is and what we mean to him because he created us for relationship with him. And then thirdly, that we would be equipped to speak with peace and wholeness to a world that is in conflict and confusion about this topic. And so far, we've had kind of three main themes come out, three main points that I just want to remind us of. First of all, human identity begins in the mind, the heart, the will, and the actions of God to create us in his image. Secondly, human identity is found in the vocation for which we were created, to hold dominion, to subdue, to care for, and to guard creation. And then last week we saw that human identity is rooted in our creation from community, the community of God for community with one another. And today, as we complete our exploration of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we need to review a few key things. We said at the very beginning of 2024, things that we're learning from Paul's letter to the Galatians. And then we need to consider three dominant voices in Western culture over the past 300 years. Now, this will not be an in-depth look at three major philosophical systems mentioned, but an overview of how they contribute to our current cultural situation. So first of all, key thoughts. Our introduction to Galatians just four weeks ago at the beginning of the year, we read through Galatians and I made three observations about the book of Galatians that, that I believe speak to this at least going through this question and examining this question of who we are as God's people, as created in God's image. One of the key themes from Paul's letter to the Galatian church had to do with the legitimacy of his apostleship. Ultimately, it was the authority, the legitimate authority that this, the Galatian churches would listen to. See, there were competing voices telling them how to live and what to value and who they should be as God's people. And to whom would the Galatians listen? Would they listen to people that wanted to bring them into Judaism and force circumcision on them and, and all of the dietary regulations and so on and so forth? Would they listen to that or would they listen to the gospel that says there is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus? Would they listen to Paul or would they listen to very legalistic Jewish people? What was the source of authority and in our case, what is the source of our authority when we engage in questions for our society and culture? Who has the right to define right and wrong, matters of ethics and governance and influence and power? Who has legitimate authority and who does not? And Galatians unpacks that for us. The second question Paul addressed was the diversity of the community, the question of who belongs and who determines who belongs and who doesn't? And on what grounds do I welcome people into the community or prevent them from entering community? Because every social system 
whether they admit it or not, can claim to be radically inclusive, but the, the reality is that every social group has exclusive elements to it. Just try disagreeing with somebody that's radically inclusive. And they'll exclude you in a big hurry. Even Paul, as radically inclusive as he was, I have become all things to all men that by all possible means I might save some, set up clear boundaries for the church community. And so there's diversity in community, but there is also an exclusive nature to it. Third, Galatians teaches us that our identity in Christ is one of ongoing radical transformation. To be a follower of Jesus must take such precedence in our lives that the issues of social, economic, political, racial, and gender divisions disappear. The self-promotion, self-protective approach of the world, which is the fruit of the sinful nature, is replaced by a radical other-oriented view of life, and that is the fruit of the Spirit. In Christ, our identity undergoes and continues to undergo radical transformation into his image and into his likeness. And so in summary, Galatians lays the foundation to engage cultural topics because we have to ask the question of legitimate authority. We have to ask the question of how we navigate diversity and community, and we will navigate then questions from the transformed identity that God is working in us. And so as you continue to hopefully study through Galatians, hopefully with a group or, or a triad or something, again, there's, you know, we got the study guides out there for you. They're ready to go. Uh, so, some more of those came in. Uh, last week, it was kind of funny because last week, of course, we really kind of dove into the issue of community and how important community is and how sometimes we really struggle with that. And the first question, the study guide, our small group meets on Sunday after, after we have lunch together and then we got in the study. The first question was, why is unity so important in the church? And we kind of laughed. <laughs> Here we are. So get into Galatians. It'll help you form your responses. So Galatians, and then <clears throat> three voices in our culture that we are contending with. And I'm, I'm really indebted to Ian Proven in his recent book, Cuckoos in Our Nest, Truth and Lies About Being Human. And he outlines several cuckoos that have gotten into our culture and our thinking and our churches regarding issues of human identity. Now, um, who knows how a cuckoo bird kind of raises its young? Right, cuckoo birds lay the egg in the nest of another bird. The other bird doesn't know the difference. It incubates it, hatches it. It usually hatches first, and then if it does hatch first, it kills the other eggs in the nest, or if the other birds are already hatched, it ejects them from the nest so that it's the only baby bird in the nest, so the parent just keeps feeding it the most. And it will largely, it will usually grow larger than the other one. It'll take over. So this whole imagery of cuckoos in our nest is that there are things that have invaded our thinking and even our church thinking that might not be true, that might be problematic, that might actually undermine our life and our thriving in the gospel. 
Now, he lists a lot. I'm going to focus on three key ones today. Um, three of these are foundational to everything we're looking at in this series on human identity, and we need to spell these out this morning, but unfortunately, I can't go into these in a lot of detail because we'd be here for a long time. But three cuckoos are simply follow the science, follow your heart, and the choose your own adventure. This is kind of the approach people have to life right now, isn't it? Just, you know, we heard this over the whole course of COVID. Just follow the science, follow the science, follow the science. If it's to me, it's up to me. Right? If it's to be, it's up to me. Power of choice. I'm going to determine what reality and truth is. Only I can determine what reality and truth is. So, first of all, let's look at this one. Follow the science. This isn't new at all. This isn't some woke agenda thing. This is, this is long, it's been around for a long time. A Western thinking, in Western thinking, this really goes back to 18th century, so the 1700s and the Enlightenment. Science, rational thought, objectively engaging and describing and dissecting the natural world will lead us to new heights as human beings and we can be free of all these silly notions of the supernatural. That's kind of the heart of the Enlightenment. That's the heart of uh, the, the scientific uh, approach. Everything is reasonable, rational, predictable in nature and natural process. If we can only understand how everything really works, we can determine then what it means. And here's where science starts to cross a bridge from the physical to what's called the metaphysical. The, the, the world as it is to the world as it maybe should be and then who determines the right and wrong in all of that. And it gets fuzzy because there's certain things science just cannot answer. But the Enlightenment said, no, science and rational thought are going to do it. Immanuel Kant in 1784 stated that the Enlightenment would be humanity's escape from the self-imposed tutelage to external authority and readiness to use its independent reason. We can do this alone. And we can figure it out. But this experiment can't support the weight of its goal. How does one determine right and wrong, what ought to be? Science can describe what is, but it crosses a line into philosophy and morality when we go to what ought to be. Just like my chocolate cake illustration I've used a number of times, right? I can make a chocolate cake, but only I... And a scientist can pick it apart and understand its intricacies of what makes it up, but only the creator of the cake can tell you why it was made. Similarly, we cannot, just by scientific method, come to a why we exist. In order to get to that point, science would need to explore every possible outcome, take into consideration every possible variable imaginable in the universe... And still the realities of nature itself and the complexity of the universe would make the task impossible. It would require one to know everything about everything and account for an infinite number of possibilities. Rationality, when you think about it, pun intended, can't answer the questions of meaning and purpose. It just can't. And, and, and when scientists attempt to jump that bridge, they kind of operate outside of their lane when scientists attempt to do that, they go from describing what is to what ought, 
when attempts to determine right and wrong based on science, they are moving from what's uh, science to philosophy and really what religion is. They're stepping out in faith. <laughs> Ian Proven states, science as science, in its passion to discover what is the case, is not capable of delivering authoritative statements on how human beings ought to live. And this helps explain why, when we carefully examine modern statements that claim to ground in nature various exhortations about what is right, we always find that these claims are not, in fact, rooted in physics at all, but instead in metaphysics. This is when we move from science to scientism. It's a belief system. When the scientific method becomes the source of all truth and the only legitimate authority with almost a religious, fanatical faith that welcomes no competition and no questions. Science then becomes the authority regardless of one's faith commitment. Objectivity is claimed on various side issues and science is believed to be the final arbiter of the argument. And this can come home to us too, whether it's age of the earth, the beginning of human life, the value of a vaccine, all sides make a conclusion first and then they bring in the science to support what they already believe. And what ends up happening isn't very scientific. We all can fall prey to follow the science on whatever end of the spectrum we're on on any of these questions. If it can be used to support our faith and political commitments, then great, follow the science. But if not, we reject it, deny it, suppress it when it doesn't. To follow the science, when we come to this question of human sexuality and identity, we run into some thorny problems. This does not mean that science is without value. It is truly a good thing and a good endeavor. However, it must be used as only one tool in the box, and the purpose and the limitations of this tool must be acknowledged and respected. Science can describe what is. It cannot tell us what ought to be. The second cuckoo is the follow your heart, or Ian Proven says gut feeling. In reaction to the impersonal cold rationality of the Enlightenment, the limitations of science, there arose the Romantic period, and this doesn't have anything to do with your relationships or buying flowers. <coughs> this was a period in Western history, roughly in the 19th century, where the pursuit of beauty, art, poetry, and emotionally driven contemplation of life and nature and meaning took root in Western thinking. Here the source of legitimate authority went from an analysis of the external world to the internal, to personal reflection and contemplation, being not an observer of nature around us, but being integrated with nature within us. <clears throat> and the outer world must be apprehended by the inner world. And so a guy like a poet like Will William Wordsworth said, it's no, get your nose out of the books, just get out into nature, connect with nature and you'll find truth and you'll find meaning and you'll find out who you really are when you just really connect with the world around you. And this is the Romantic era. It's led to a development of deeply individualistic subjectivity in relation to the world around me. Margaret Wolfe Hungerford in 1878 said, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which was amended by Ruth Hubbard in 1998 to read, truth is in the eye of the beholder. 
In other words, whatever you believe to be true for you is true for you, but it's not objective truth. It's just your truth. Therefore, there is no objective morality, no right and wrong, or simply a, it's just a, simply a social convention or, or an invention of society. The best we can do is follow our hearts, and we should be able to construct a moral and just society. Again, from Ian Proven, I think he puts this really well in this quote. It is a holy moment in contemporary culture when individuals, having looked within, disclose the truth about their individual human nature to others. And this is why the question nowadays a person's subjective account of who they really are is in many quarters virtually tantamount to blasphemy, i.e. a religious crime. In several countries, citizens are in fact essentially forbidden to question this personal testimony by new laws passed in the pursuit of freedom of this contemporary kind of religion. And that's true today in Canada, is it not? We cannot question people's stated identity. It's sacred ground, untouchable. So just follow your heart. The truth is inside. But it's not long into the story of Genesis when we learn that this approach to right and wrong is tragic and misguided. By Genesis 4, Cain is confronted with God. His heart is bitter and it's angry. He's invited to master his inner world, but he fails. Cain does what he feels is right and just in the situation, and the first homicide in humanity is recorded. God then looks at humanity and well, just a little while later and he sees things are not improving. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and thought of his heart was only evil continually. I think it's Jeremiah that says, The human heart is deceitful beyond all understanding. Who can wrap his mind around it? James repeats this. Over and over, we are taught through Scripture that our hearts are not good guides to truth because there is something deeply wrong in the heart of every single human being, leading us not towards justice and righteousness, but to corruption and greed and envy and brokenness and evil. And this is blasphemous in our culture, to say that the human heart is corrupt. But this is what Scripture teaches from cover to cover. And we'll be looking at that intently in the coming three weeks, the fact of sin. Because without a strong understanding of sin, we will miss who we really are and who God is making us to be in Christ. We have to engage the doctrine of sin very significantly in our day and age because it is largely rejected by the world and by a lot of Christians, or those who say they're Christians. Follow the science, follow your heart. Well, when those come up empty, where do you turn to? Choose your own adventure. 
When it comes down to it, rational examination of the world around us comes up short and the emotional examination of the world inside of us is deceptive and self-driven. So then if truth cannot be found in the world around us or the world inside of us, what are the options? Where do we go? Well, if the goal is to remain resolutely humanistic and naturalistic, the next step is to simply give up trying to make sense of life and just do the best that you can because it doesn't mean anything. Make your choices and get what you can out of life. <clears throat> do what makes you happy because that's all you're going to get. The hopes of the Enlightenment and Romanticism were already crumbling in Western thought prior to 1914, but really the outbreak of World War I in the following years and into World War II pretty much was the nail in the coffin. As rational people who believed in the innate goodness of the human heart witnessed humanity at its worst, using science to destroy and rip the world apart, despair took root. And existentialism came into full bloom in the 20th century. The conclusion that life has no ultimate meaning and purpose other than do what you want, make your choices, and get on with life as best you can. Therefore, choose the path that's best for you. Legitimate authority moved from objective rationality to personal inner intuition to simply acting for the good of self through the power to choose. I determine what's right for me. I define my identity. I define what is good. And no one else can do it for me, nor should they. That impedes on my individual sovereignty. Ultimately, my will alone is the authority. Therefore, choice becomes my God. Now, where does this lead us in creating a just and fair society? Well, the bottom line is, in the words of Friedrich Nietzsche, the will to power. His vision of the emergence of the superman. Those who have power will ultimately rule those who don't. Or don't uh, and those who have the most money, the most power, the most influence will define what is right and wrong in society based on what's good for them and what keeps them in power and what profits their agenda. The freedom to choose in the hands of the powerful is the, is the freedom to control. Ultimately, it's dictatorship. And it's growing because personal choice is now the ultimate value in Western society. Again, for me and Proven, this is where people routinely go nowadays when all arguments about right and wrong on the basis of objectivity fail, and when they, or when they can't be bothered to look for them. Well, it's my choice. This is also where we go when we don't hold someone else accountable for the behavior. Well, that's just their choice. Hey, we just, eh, it's okay, it's all about choice. It's all about freedom. Now, how consistently can a society thrive if the highest court of appeal is individual personal choice? It's going to implode sooner or later. I remember hearing years ago that if you look at the history of all the, all the uh, empires that have come and gone from Egypt to Rome to Babylon to, uh, you know, every empire starts off with kind of a communal responsibility. We are responsible for our society. And it eventually morphs into, I have my personal rights and freedoms that are unassailable. And it is usually when it comes down to, it's all about me and my power in society, that things really start to fall apart and the empire falls. Because we no longer live for the good of community. We just live for the good of self. 
again for me in Proven. The people who are, are, are basing their life on the power to choose, they may quite like the freedom that this philosophy gives them in various areas of their own lives when things are going well, but just let them suffer at the hands of someone else operating on the same ethical basis, and typically you will hear a very different story than the language of objective reality including objective right and wrong, will suddenly reappear with a vengeance. That's a lie. What, what you did is wrong. Uh, a friend of mine used to get it. He, he, uh, he commuted into Vancouver uh, to his job and used to get into these ethical theological conversations with random people on the train. And, you know, and this, this whole thing, you know, well, what's right for me is right and you can't tell me what's right and all this other stuff. And, you know, my truth and is different than your truth and all truth is relative. There's no morals or absolutes. And he said, okay, like what really feels good for me and, and what fulfills me in life is collecting uh, pinky fingers from this first knuckle. So I got a pair of side cutters in my bag here and I would like, because this is my truth and this fulfills my life, I, I, need your, I, I need you to just give me your hand for a second. <laughs> Suddenly, objective truth became very important. <laughs> and we can't just go, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, because personal choice ends up hurting people. Yes. But we love and we'll fight for the freedom of personal choice in our society. And we'll do it as long as it benefits us and our group, but we'll fight more often than not when it goes against our beliefs and our group. The power of choice, the idea that ultimately we must have the freedom to choose is foundational to our identity as modern Western people, but is it biblical? Will it really lead to a better world for all if we can all just do what is right in our own eyes? I think there's a whole book in the Bible that says that might not be the case. Look at Judges. Follow the science, follow your heart, choose your own adventure. These three approaches to defining life and meaning are part of our society and have been for generations. Gen generations. These, none of these are new. These, are, these are, have, been, have been the philosophy churning for the last 300 years. When I took a course at, at seminary in the, uh, the, uh, uh, the calling to, uh, ah, what was it called? Uh, the Ministry of Research, Writing, and Christian Scholarship. Big title. It was for those of us who were planning to go into like biblical studies and do PhDs and, and all that other stuff, not necessarily pastoring, but the academic guys, because that's where I really wanted to go. Here I am. Um, very few people can actually go that route. There's not a lot of jobs out there. Um, but anyway, one of the things we talked about in that was that as you're maybe doing research, as you're, as you're thinking through this stuff, as you're, as you're delving deep, you're kind of always on the fringes of orthodoxy, but know that usually it's going to take two or three generations before what, be, what is talked about in the academy becomes commonplace in society. And so things that are being debated, discussed in academics now, it's going to be a few generations before that lands in people's general thinking. And so, too, all of these philosophies from the Enlightenment to the Romantic period to existentialism, they've been around for a long time. And now it's so common we don't even know that they're there. 
It's just part of the air we breathe, the water we swim in. But we need to be aware of these things. I'm going to get at least one or two copies of that book for our library because I think it's a very good examination of modern culture and how we need to engage the question of human identity from a biblical perspective. All right. That's a lot of heady stuff. I want to just kind of bring this back to the last examination uh, of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Over the past three weeks, we have determined a biblical understanding of human identity has three components. We are created in his image, and this gives us value as human beings. We were created for a purpose of vocation as image bearers to rule, subdue, keep, and care for the earth. And we were created from community for community. This is our village. Our identity is connected with God and with others. But there's one more aspect that we need to look at briefly today, and we, need, we do need to spend more time on it than we can this morning. But for today, we're going to focus on what Genesis 1 and 2 teaches about human identity in this one small piece that we have till now overlooked in Genesis 1.27. And that is that we exist humanity in his image, male and female. Three verses I want us to consider this morning. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Genesis 2.18, and then God, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man should, that he should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then in Genesis 5, 1 to 2, almost a repetition of 127. This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. The first thing, some observations, first of all, if we read back through Genesis 1, 20 to 25, we will note that no other creation of animal life on earth is noted as having a gendered existence. The text simply states that all the other animals were created according to their kinds. And that refers to a variety of species. With humanity, however, there is this gendered existence with no variety of kinds. There is one human race. There are no kinds of humans. There is only one humanity, and this is expressed and exists as male and female. What today we view as race is completely absent from the creation accounts. There is one humanity and one race to which all people belong. Secondly, the repetition of this gendered reality in 127 and 5.2 and the special and specific narrative of the creation of humanity in Genesis 2 points to the significance and the distinction humanity bears as God's special act of creation to bear his image, to fulfill his purpose, and humanity does that as male and female. The author is going out of his way to emphasize that this is a necessary binary existence that humanity must embrace to fulfill our mandate in creation. And perhaps this is even emphasized in Genesis 1, 2 to 5, so that in the very patriarchal society in which God's people lived and came out of and were in bondage to over the centuries, 
that they would know at the very beginning of the revelation of God that male and female were created to be the image of God, not just men. Because in ancient societies, that's the way it worked. And men, men were seen as, as lords and women were seen as possessions. But everything we have said about human value, vocation, and village apply equally to both men and women, male and female. This is foundational. And it is radically countercultural in the ancient Near East. And as we come to Genesis 2, we notice that this is also the only two-stage creation story. All other animals are created together. Humanity's creation, male and female, is recounted in a story, in a process, in two stages. So Genesis 2 is a two-stage creation story. It's radically different than Genesis 1 in many ways, but the striking fact is, is centrally concerned with the creation of the human couple. It starts with God forming the man, Ha-Adam, out of the dirt, the Adama, the same root word. As I said the other week, and my kids thought it was hilarious, the dirtling. And they started saying, hello, fellow dirtling. <laughs> the man then, in Genesis 2, begins his creational vocation to rule and have dominion over the rest of creation. He's given the garden to work and to keep, and he is presented with the animals to name. And the act of naming in the ancient Near East, ancient Near Eastern thought is the act of exerting authority and dominion over another. It's not necessarily oppressive, but what it's doing is defining the nature of relationship between man and beast. And this is for further, the further ordering of creation that God created man to do. The man, and it's, it's a title, it's not a name, because it's always the man, Definite article in Hebrew, ha-adam, the man, he is already doing what God created him to do that we read about in Genesis 1. The ordering of creation, man bearing God's image and speech and language, creating order by naming the animals, God creation coming to greater clarity and order through these acts of the man. However, ha-adam is acting alone, and this is lo-tov. Not good. It's so emphatic in the original. <laughs> Not good. Then the account of the creation of the animals. Notice the structure. <laughs> the, 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 the low tove, if you, if you look in, in uh, 2.18, this is the not good piece. It is opposite to everything God had declared about his creation to this point. While man is fulfilling his creational vocation and embodying his value as God's image and likeness, he is doing it apart from the village. Notice how the text is structured. First, there is God's evaluation. It's not good that man should be alone in 2.18. Then there's this kind of diversion, an account of the creation of animals and the man's naming of the animals and the fact that among all the animals there wasn't a counterpart for man. And then we get back to the issue at hand. The man is alone. And the author wants to clearly communicate that regardless of man fulfilling his vocation and having a clear and open relationship with God himself, there is still something missing. And it cannot be found in the creation or the garden or even in relationship with God himself. And so God himself must provide the necessary missing piece. 
And we're going to come back to this in a number of weeks, and we're going to focus on one of our doctrinal statements in our confession of faith, marriage and singleness and family. And we're going to spend some time just on that. We're going to come back to that, but just notice this is so foundational to the identity of man that he can't do it alone. While a man can exercise dominion over creation alone, he cannot fill the earth and subdue it alone. Kind of need babies for that. So God does the surgery, and the traditional view is that, well, he just simply took a rib, kind of an extra bit that, you know, you know missing one rib, I'm not going to hurt you too much. The original language really is more he ripped them in half. Doesn't quite, rib doesn't quite capture it. More accurately, God split the man in two and fashioned the woman literally to be his other half. God forms man out of the dirt like a potter with clay, but he fashions the woman as an artist. And then he brings the two halves together and humanity is complete. And now it is very good. And we get the very first psalm in the Bible. The very first song. And it starts out with, oh yes, that's it. <laughs> and that's man looking at woman. This is he not praising God at this moment. He's just... Wow. When I was first taking Hebrew, I noticed something and I thought it was just funny tongue-in-cheek, but if you take out the vowel points which were added around 800 AD from the Hebrew text, the word for, uh, the, the, the three consonants that make up the word woman and the three consonants that make up the word fire are exactly the same. So I was like, ha, she's hot. <laughs> That kind of gets what Adam's saying here. This is great. <laughs> God brings the two together, and this praise, the first song in the Bible, is a praise of what God has provided in woman. This is the song that the man, Ha'adam, again exercises his naming prerogative and names both woman and himself, Isha and Ish. The first occurrence of these words in Scripture and the nouns are closer together in Hebrew than in translation. Literally, it would read, and she shall be called woman, she shall be called Ish, because from Ish, she will be called Isha, because from Ish she was taken. It's one noun presented together in just a masculine and feminine singular forms. One noun, one meaning, one humanity. And this is humanity at the beginning created in a complementary binary pair, male and female, in the image of God, to rule and subdue the earth. This will, be, this will require filling the earth, something that neither men or women can do on their own. The focus is on their togetherness in these passages. They both bear the image of God. They both have a vocation from God. They both are the result of God's active will to create humanity like himself. Again, what is not obvious in the stark contrast would have been obvious in an ancient Near Eastern culture in their readers' minds, where men, are created, where, where men were created to be slaves to the gods and women were little more than possessions. And only the ruling monarch, the king, was said to bear the image of God. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, we read something radically countercultural as men and women are given purpose and meaning and identity and value as image-bearing individuals in community with one another. 
so that even the Sabbath commandments state that all are to observe the Sabbath, male and female, slaves and foreigners included. This would have been so highly subversive in the ancient world, and we take it for granted. Also, when we get to the New Testament, we see that in the household codes in Galatians or, or Ephesians and Colossians, Paul addresses women and children directly in his letters. Again, highly subversive and countercultural in the first century Greco-Roman world to which Paul was speaking. Normally, it would just say, men, control your family, that's it. Do whatever it takes. Instead, there is an address to every member of the family as a rational, loving, image-bearing person in relationship with one another. But there is structure and there is order in these relationships. We're not up against those realities as much today. Instead, we live in a world in which the gender lines are being systematically destroyed and gender identities are multiplying unchecked and are unquestionable. Scientism, individualism, and the freedom of choice have become the defining authorities when it comes to gender. And we'll address this in later discussions and some special events and seminars we hope to run this spring. But as much as this is an unbiblical definition of humanity, I ask the question, have the people of God demonstrated that life as defined by God's design for gender and sexuality is without question the way for human flourishing and beauty. Have we done a good job with it? Has the church fought hard for the eradication of pornography and human trafficking in our culture? Or does the fact that 50% of evangelical men and 30% of evangelical women admit to having an active addiction to pornography? And does it prove that we really don't value it that much? There is much in the family of God that is not going well to honor our identity as male and female in his image. Has the breakdown in family and the church not telegraphed a message to our culture that our commitment to covenant relationship is optional? Have we been living more by choose your own adventure, follow your heart than by biblical instruction? And I know these are difficult things to wrestle through, have we allowed a distorted view of gender roles in the marriage to become misogynistic and oppressive rather than the cult, biblical call to submission and sacrifice that it demands? Perhaps before we rail against the culture around us, we need to take a hard look at the culture among us as followers of Jesus and do some hard work. Amen. Judgment begins with the house of God. Amen. What we really need is to spend time in the Word of God and let it guide us in our thinking and our responses. In Galatians, Paul's first question addressed, what is the legitimate authority in your life? To whom will you listen? And even though Paul argues for diverse community, he also confronts wrong theology and behaviors, and there is radical inclusion in the family of God, but there are also clear boundaries. What is most needed in each of our lives and for the sake of of the gospel is the ongoing transformation, the results and the fruit of the Spirit being evident in our lives so that a watching world will begin to see how empty their lives and their approach have become. In Scripture, 
Is Scripture forming our picture of what it means to be human and what it means to be male and female? So our main points thus far. Human identity begins in the mind, the heart, the will, and the actions of God to create us in his image. Human identity is found in the vocation for which we were created to hold dominion, subdue, care for, and guard creation. Human identity is rooted in our creation from community for community with God and others. And human identity is expressed in our creation as male and female. Our goals are to understand God and his purposes in creating us so that we would become more settled and joyful in life, that we would be drawn into deeper worship and wonder of who God is and what we mean to him, and then to be equipped to speak peace and wholeness to a world that is in conflict and confusion. Lord, may your word and your truth cut through the clutter and the noise of our world around us and the world inside us. May your truth change our hearts and lives and our relationships so that we can live well, that we can, as, as James said, give obvious reason for the hope that we have because we have put you first, set apart in your hearts Christ Jesus as Lord, and always be ready to give an answer to those who ask you about the hope that you have in your heart. And so, Lord, would you fill us with hope and expectation in the transforming work of your Spirit so that we can walk this out in our families and in our communities with greater power in the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. Against any of these things, there's no law. And so, Lord, help us to live that out in, in our in our day-to-day life. Go with us this week so that we may do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we're just going to skip closing song. Let's stand for the benediction. This is from 2 Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, doing the work of an evangelist, fulfilling your ministry. Lord, may we go with that in our hearts and lives today, that you have called us to be your image-bearing people in and through our, our lives and our families, and may we show the world what it looks like to live that out. In Jesus' name, amen.
Have a great week. Kids are serving coffee. Have some time with them.